0: So, this is the first episode of season four. So, seasons going forward will just run the whole year. I'm sure you saw the spreadsheet that I sent over, which has (laughs) the entire year mapped out on it. Uh, And of course, the first thing that I'm doing is uh, diverting from that. So, I got some messages that were sort of secondhand from social media with people asking me about Delphi and people asking me about um, the the Idaho quadruple homicide um, and people basically wanting to know like why we didn't have that. We did, we recorded a lot of material last year that didn't make it into the show. Specifically, we, we had like a wrap up show that covered some of those things. I sort of made a last minute decision not to put that into the feed because With, like, for instance, with the Idaho case, I got some information that, like, maybe what the police were saying wasn't 100% accurate. And it turns out that 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 was true. And I say that because, like, we recorded it sort of right after we did, like, the last of the Christmas episodes. And the police were saying, we have no suspect. We have no information to release at this time, blah, blah, blah. Uh, And clearly they had someone in mind because the person that they ended up arresting for that case, which from the last time they said we have no suspect to the time they arrested the person was like a day or two. I have so many questions about that case. I have so many questions about Delphi uh, from the perspective of like a true crime audience member. And also from the perspective of someone who is very staunchly uh, in the defense's case. in so many situations that I'm glad I didn't release like the episodes that we had. It's not that we like veered way off of it, but I feel like with Delphi and and with the Idaho quadruple homicide and uh, the Moscow-Idaho case, I don't think we're going to know what happened in those cases for quite some time. And honestly, they have nothing to do with our season four. Although I do like to be able to put some true crime news into the episodes, that is not ultimately going to end up being uh, a part of this unless we decide to do something a little... I don't know, make, like maybe something with like the alternate feeds. We've been tinkering with the idea of having a subscrip- uh subscription with like bonus episodes. It might be something like that, but it won't be in the main feed.
1: It could derail this entire thing because I feel like this is actually the mountain for our avalanche.
0: You mean, like? Are you talking about, like, the, uh, the, the Idaho case with things sort of being supposedly genetic genealogy or familial genealogy happening in real time?
1: Yeah. I'm just curious why you're saying supposedly.
0: I just doubt that it's genetic genealogy. I think it's something else. I mean, how far do you want to de- derail this episode? Because, I mean, I'll, I, I think something's wrong there. I'm not saying he didn't do it.
1: Well, we don't have to talk about whether he it's, did it or not. Tell me why you think that they haven't found the genetic genealogy. Like, how else did they find this guy?
0: Um, if they found him, they basically they basically found him on like day three. If if they found him, they found him on like day three. Um, there's no way. There's something wrong here. I don't know what it is, and it's not like I'm sitting here going, "Oh, it can't be genetic genealogy unfolding in real time." Although that's part of it. Well, um, I don't think they
1: found him on day three. I think every time they said they didn't have a suspect, they really didn't have a suspect. I think they they had to. Yeah, wait I'm saying for the that was a lie. Be, I'm
0: saying that's completely a lie.
1: I feel like they had to wait for the profile to be built and then matched. And that they so, really didn't know for certain what was going to come from it.
0: Yeah, there's, I don't know. So like with Delphi, it's easier for me to express doubt like directly at the like idea of forensic tool marking being the key. Um, actually, like I would move, if I were the defense attorneys in Delphi, I would immediately move to squash the probable cause on stale evidence because they had that bullet in 2017 and the argument that, they didn't know how to do tool marks then versus now, like would not hold up in court. so I can tell you really easily on Delphi, like did he do that? I have no idea. I don't know if Richard Allen did that and and honestly, I just I'm hoping for closure to that case. with this one. it's sort of the opposite of that. Like, my head I, says too soon.
1: I just want to know like, okay, the only way this makes sense to me. Um, is if they tracked him through genetic genealogy. I can't figure out how they would have come up with him and, like, sought him out and arrest him otherwise.
0: Well, okay. So if we take him and we just, like, move him to the side and we just, like, say whatever, he did it, he didn't do it, whatever we don't know. Um, and then we just look at the process. What I'm saying is everything unfolding in what's essentially six weeks when it's it's about right. You think so?
1: I do. Mm -hmm. Uh, I feel like it did get a little bit uh, perhaps expedited because I think a lot of times they're looking at a backlog of things and it takes some uh, sort of organizing to get anything done with, you know, cases that are cold or like uh, catching up a backlog of evidence that's been uh, collected but not tested. And, you know, I do think of a quadruple homicide of college kids that were sleeping at home. Uh, it's a big deal. So it is possible it was a little bit expedited, but I don't think it was – I think that they could do it in quicker than six weeks. And I don't know for certain, but I, I have heard that they actually – Uh, Got. they had DNA in a public database from an immediate relative.
0: Yeah, I heard it was his father. I heard his dad had an Ancestry.com account and it had been uploaded to one of those sharing accounts.
1: And so that would have taken like a split second. Right. To find, because he would literally have 50% of his father's DNA. And without another son... There would be no other person in the world that would have fifty percent with the Y chromosome, so it narrowed it down really fast.
0: Yeah, I mean it, it, it's very interesting to me, and the suspect himself is like a whole bucket of like interesting nonsense. Because and like this whole investigation, in a way, is unfolding in real time in a way that I've never seen. Well, I'll say the genetic genealogy is just a piece of it. Right, but
1: but it it it's kind of bringing to fruition what I've been talking about. Like you cannot get away with crimes now, Um, and you know this guy he's studying uh, or he was in the doctoral PhD criminal justice program at Washington State University.
0: Yeah, yeah, he he actually studied at Desales before that for his master's under um, Catherine. Uh, Ramslin, who she has given like a lot of commentary on Israel keys and other places. Um, so I have followed her some here and there. Um, but he was studying criminal justice. Um, and one of the things that, that I had thought about unfolding in real time was I had seen a, a Reddit post and I saw this ahead of knowing his name and, and everything that had happened. And I put it together after the fact, cause people were pointing out that it was his Reddit post where he had a very detailed DeSales um, Quadraulics survey about, like, you know, if you have committed a crime, like, what did you do? And I went through that survey. It's gone now. It was gone pretty quickly. Uh, This is, like, one of the days I think you were – it was happening where, like, he had just been arrested – and I had opened the It was the before
1: everything pulled, was pulled down. Yeah. Yeah.
0: And like everything about him um, that we had tracked in him in real time has been um, either deleted or archived and made private. Because um, we were able to track quite a bit of information about him in the first 48 hours. And then suddenly that information was no longer there. Um, but again, I the reason I, I didn't put out. Uh, we had a couple of, like, I would call them wrap-up episodes. Um, the reason we I didn't put that out was because Delphi is going to be unfolding this year. and That's Richard Allen going through some of the court process. Um, and clearly, Idaho is going to be unfolding at least partially this year. My assumption is, like, uh, the most recent thing that's happened there in time, um, as of recording, maybe not as of release, is, like, he's waived his extradition. And I think you and I both saw... Documents that he had been released, which means that he had been probably taken into the custody of the United States Marshals.
1: That was my um, guess, yeah.
0: And so what uh, for people who don't know, frequently when you're being extradited from one location to another, um, if it's just a state away or within the same state, uh, it's typically going to be like either county to county transportation, meaning there are sheriff's officers involved. Um, It could potentially be uh, your state bureau, depending on where you live uh, in the U.S. Uh, But if you're going between states of any distance, like if you're going from Washington, D.C. to Florida, or if you're going from New York to California, or in this case, you would be going from Pennsylvania over to Idaho, um, you're probably going to end up in the custody of the United States Marshals because that's, you know, that's one of the, the biggest things they do is transport. Uh, fugitives and defendants. Uh, sometimes they also transport convicts. Uh, con air is a is a a known thing. In fact, one of the the odd things about the Israel Keys case was there was an Oklahoma City stop, but what it really was, he it was just him going through the hub to be con aired back to Alaska after he had been arrested in Texas, and that's what probably is happening to Brian Koberger. On Wednesday, January the fourth, even as we're speaking, more than likely he is, and I've been like I don't want to give too much about myself away. I've been in the line for Conair. I didn't. I've never been transported on Conair, but the way that that works is you have a lot of waiting time um, because they're gathering. I thought you were joking. (laughs) No, no, you um, uh,
1: because Conair is also the brand name of like hair dryers. Right, it's also
0: a movie, um, but Con Air is is is, that's a very real thing. It's the U.S. Marshals. If it's more that like so, you'll see them sometimes on um, more commercial flights, but they do actually transport criminals on what's known as J.Pats. So JPATs is the Justice Prisoner and Alien Transportation System. The nickname for that for many years has been Con Air. So this is the agency of the federal government who their sole purpose is to make sure that people who are in custody for whatever reason, whether you're being deported or you're being taken to your court date or you're being, in, like in this case, extradited, you would be in the custody of JPATs and And the actual officers that you would run into would be United States marshals. I think they would all be.
1: That's to avoid jurisdictional marshals. issues.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's they specifically are a pretty neutral law enforcement party. You know, they have a reputation for being pretty efficient. Uh, there are different ways that they work. Sometimes it's like small planes. Sometimes it's very large planes. I think uh, in the movie with like um, Nicholas Cage playing, you know, a man who was supposed to be getting his last ride home on Con Air with a plane full of prisoners. I think that's a a very large plane. Most of them aren't quite that large, but so they shuffle everybody by car to one location um, where they basically get them all in a line. The marshals pick them up and the marshals put them on, a, a flight of some form, depending on how many people they are taken I've seen them take like one or two people at a time, but frequently it's been more than that. Um, I have been standing there and been able to ask questions of people that were part of Conair, uh, or most of them were facing federal charges and moving to another jurisdiction. Like, you know, what's the process like? And you know, the marshals, that were there were very much not wanting you to do that because they keep it all hush-hush. It's very security oriented. But the, um, the general uh, gist of what I will say the transportees said was it took a really long time and they spent a lot of their time waiting. Like it would take sometimes days to get to the final destination because of like, they have to be transported to like a central location within a state and then they all get picked up and then they all finally get on a plane. Um, they may go through the hub in one of the major. I don't want to just name them off cause I don't know if that's public knowledge or not. I'd have to go look it up on the website. But for instance, Oklahoma city has a hub. Um, cause like that's in court documents for different things that we've covered. The idea being Eventually, they're going to make it to their destination and have their first appearance on the court date and all those things that happen with the legal process, whether they're there for some type of immigration issue, which, you know, it's two federal agencies playing in in that pool, or if it's more of a federal transfer, like by the marshals to like a state um, agency who then, you know, cordons him off to the appropriate jurisdiction, usually like some kind of county. In this case, it, he will go to Moscow, Idaho, to the to the local county jail. So that's what we anticipated was happening as we started recording today for the Idaho suspect. Obviously, the, the same was not true for Delphi, because I believe they just moved him to a state facility pretty quickly to keep him safe because of the high priority or the what would that be like? The visibility? high profile. High profile. That was, That's the word I was looking for.
1: Well, I don't think. Uh, I don't think the Moscow murder uh, suspect is going to be waiting. Don't. Don't you think they're just going to take him like one on one? Because this is a huge case, isn't it?
0: They may. They're not going to tell you. Until after the fact. Well, right.
1: Um, I just don't see him like waiting in line with everybody else. That's yeah, another mean, thing about um his like the whole thing that went down with him. I feel like if they had known who he was, um, they would have got him before he went out of town.
0: They uh, now they have confirmed they surveilled him for multiple days in December, and from right, what I saw, it was just right it, before it was,
1: they arrested him, though,
0: it looked like eighteen days.
1: Well, I I saw four days before they arrested him. They were it, watching him.
0: Well, uh, there's this whole story about a guy in his apartment complex or a neighboring apartment complex getting killed by police um, in December. It actually comes up in the course of, I think you saw these. These are the body cam from, they get stopped. Uh, hold on. I'm getting ahead of myself. So this kid was a student at, the univers- at Washington State University, as Meg mentioned. As a PhD candidate there, his dad leaves Pennsylvania and picks him up in Idaho, uh, in Washington. Sorry, and they drive a car that's apparently had a bolo out on it. Not just this car, but anyone like it—a white Hyundai Elantra. Well, just keep in mind that
1: that um, Elantra was a 2015, and the bolo was not for 2015. It was like 2011 to 2013.
0: Yeah, I don't know. I, I, it I know wasn't
1: included in the criteria. So there's no reason anybody would have been looking for that car.
0: What do you mean? They pulled him over twice.
1: Yeah, but they weren't looking for him. He was speeding. Well,
0: they pulled him over for following too closely first, and then uh, they pulled him over for going over just a couple of times. It had nothing to do with
1: over. the murders, though.
0: Well, I'm not saying it had anything to do with the murders. I'm saying we can watch it on body camera and we can hear him and his father talking and they're referencing like the reason they're driving all the way across the country because the state trooper that pulls them over makes some kind of comment about, um, are you guys afraid of airplanes or something to that effect? And the dad says, no, I just came and I came out and I drove with them. And then they mention somehow in that conversation that, Someone had been involved in a standoff either in his apartment complex or a nearby apartment complex and had been killed by the police there. And that's a guy named Brent uh, Kapaka who was killed there. He's that
1: all threat. comes up in that body cam?
0: Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, It's mentioned in the body cam footage of the second stop with the trooper. The first stop was, uh, he said it was a county person, but the second stop is with... Um, uh, Indiana State trooper, and he says uh, different things to them. And their answers, uh, they bring up Brent Kapaka in there. They don't bring him up by name. They just bring him up as having uh, died. And he died in in December. Um, so it would have been right before they make making this drive. So we haven't covered those cases. They will probably come up in episodes that sort of go along. They might come up like this, like we're talking right now. Or episodes that go along with our season four. There's other types of true, true kind of news that um, has come up. And, like, I will touch on some of that for, like, openings of episodes. For instance, Susan Ledger. Are you familiar with that case from up in Delaware? Yeah. So uh, there was a woman named Susan Ledyard who – she was found dead in the summer of 2019 – near the 12th Street Bridge in water uh, outside of Wilmington, Delaware, or right on the edge of Wilmington, Delaware, I believe. And her car had been found uh, a couple of miles upriver from where she her body was found. And then Delaware State Police said in September of 2019 that they didn't believe that she had committed suicide. And finally, the state medical examiner came out and said that um, her cause of death was blunt force trauma and drowning, Uh, I think at the end of 2019, like November, December, they finally declared her death a homicide, but her murder case is unsolved. And she's one of those that, like you always say, just kind of draw the the easiest line. Um, There had apparently been some stuff going on with Susan and her husband, Benjamin. Um, But the news part of that is that he was arrested. Uh, Not for that. But he was arrested on New Year's Day after um, the county police up in Delaware were called uh, to Tallyville to, to where he lives with his new wife. So it's 2019 that she dies in the summer. He's remarried and he ends up being arrested for a domestic assault on his new wife. And uh, she had to be taken to the hospital to be treated for her injuries. And I, you know, I always wonder when things like that happen. We've watched a couple of different cases like that. There was the the Tennessee case where the husband ends up getting arrested down in Florida afterwards for assault and kind of put in jail. Do you remember that one? Yep. Anyways, that's more what'll be coming up in terms of true crime news, sort of as the year goes. And I I do like to open the show talking a little bit about true crime news before we, like, get into what we're doing. Um, And people have asked me, like, what are we going to do for season four? And is it going to be, like, you know, case by case? Or is it going to be, like, one long case? And the answer is it's sort of a hybrid of that. So in the course of our seasons, Meg and I put together... I think last year we put together 70 episodes, maybe 80. I don't know exactly how many aired, but it was something like 68 episodes or a little more aired because of the way we do our our Christmas episodes where we release about 12, one per day during Christmas. We're doing that again. And so what we'll have for this year is I don't, think there'll be a break there may, um there there may be a little break at the end of the year uh, sort of depending on how things go but we're going to cover a couple of serial killers in depth and for the most part uh we're starting off with kind of like some softballs uh, at the beginning of the season to get to this sort of sprawling investigation that meg and i have come back to multiple times um, what you'll find is for the most part, these killers all sort of take place in the same time frame, and they will they'll have some things in common um, with that, but then there'll be some really clear distinctions between them. Like today, we're gonna talk about a killer that we know a lot of what he he did. And he'll tie directly into a few episodes on the next killer. And then, you know, it'll sort of go from there. So the answer is it's like a hybrid of what we're doing. It won't be a case per episode per se. There'll be a few of those one-off type cases that are sort of unrelated to give you a break between serial killers unless they're directly linked. But for the most part, we're, we're covering several serial killers, including one or two serial killers that maybe aren't serial killers at all and then there's one towards the one or two towards the end of the year uh sort of like uh, i i'll say it this way i've been told that one of the cases towards the end of the year has a big update coming i don't know what that means and the other case was actually going to be part of the wrap up for the end of 2022, but I paused that because I wanted to see what they were doing with it. And that's a very different kind of serial killer. And he ties into, to what we're doing for the season. Uh, so things that we missed that, that may come back up from the wrap up, uh, we are going to cover, we have a couple of episodes for Israel keys stuff. They may not feel like they're directly related to Israel keys. Um, for instance, I like one of the big things that made me shut down um the very last episode of the year was I got a call back from a medical examiner's office who thought that you and I may have made a match on something that does tie the keys. And I want to see what the results of that are going to be because it's something the FBI did that I've always disputed, like how they handled it and like what it meant. And it comes up in these other podcasts and, it comes up in the books that are written where they attribute someone to him. I was pretty sure was unrelated to him. And I think, I think that's how you felt, but I think you were always kind of on the fence, right? I, I don't want to say the name here because um, there's two I'm alluding to.
1: I, well, I've never been on the fence. I, uh, at first, I believed uh, he was most likely responsible, but then after doing some research, I believed that he was not responsible okay. for either one of them
0: yeah that's so there's two of there's two because of those
1: at face value you know
0: uh, yeah that that first. was the approach i took too you're talking about his words right
1: well his words more so the fact that the they were sort of presented i mean sort of um in a roundabout way at least and I, I just sort of took it for what it was worth. And so initially, I thought, well, maybe it is right. But then, after time went by, I don't think he's responsible for them.
0: Yeah, yeah i i don't I don't know how those are going to turn out, but I think they're going to come up in this season. I know one of them is. Um, I don't know about the other because I have trouble getting uh, records from the area the other person is in, and. You know, once you have like a a high profile connection to something, um, people get really skeptical of your motives and it gets difficult to argue down the term open and active investigation if someone is skeptical of what you're going to do with the information they may give you.
1: Is that directly related to you requesting it?
0: No, I think it's related to it, like the number of people who have maybe requested information about those two cases. I see. Like, it's not me per se. Well, I took a different tack. Like, one of them, I was able to look at it and go, wait a second, there's previous arrest here. I can go get that information because there were some things I needed to satisfy. And the other one, I don't think I need to get any information about that one. I think it's just unrelated. I think it just like is one of those really strange coincidences that if you look at it and drill down on the timeline, it's not really a coincidence. Like it's the wrong day.
1: And it's always been the wrong day.
0: Right. People have just bent it to their will and, and that has made it strange.
1: Well, right. And anytime that happens, I'm always skeptical because I mean, if if we're going to go into that, it could be anything, right? Right.
0: Yeah, and you have to consider the source of the information as well. Because, like, that was something that happened with the Idaho murders is you immediately, like, pointed me to a couple of things that were popping up. And I'm not going to justify them by talking in depth about them here. But people were publishing, and this is a quote of, this is like, they're just publishing anything. That's what you said to me. Me quoting. I
1: really, I felt like the reporter had a deadline and they didn't have anything else to turn in.
0: Yeah, like some of the stuff that has been said like feels pretty close to fiction.
1: It's uh I would I believe I also said to you that I I felt like it would be in everybody's best interest for them to give up journalism.
0: For that person?
1: The person that published the articles, yes.
0: Yeah. We'll see what happens cuz now I'm Following her RSS feed to see if she uh, becomes a, a big journalist or if she disappears because uh, she's pretty young and pretty new to that desk, so I want to see what happens. So on to <laughs> on to what we're we're starting with here. I sort of uh, made this massive list of names and you know potential episodes and stories, uh, and I realized what I was probably going to have to do along the way to explain my thinking was to start with crimes that had beginnings and endings so that we had like clear cut, if not super popular mainstream examples, but clear cut examples of serial killers who like, we sort of knew their story as much as we could um, either from their own words or from what we could track uh through the court system because some of the serial killers we're going to talk about, they don't have endings and we don't have as many answers as we would like, but we're going to try and see if we can't get to the bottom of them. The example that I wanted to start out with is what's known as a lonely hearts killer. Had you ever heard of this, like from the perspective as being a, a sort of a species of killer or type of killer? Yes. So... I did not know, like I've studied a lot of 20th century scams that are similar to this. And I've studied quite a few serial killers, including one that I didn't even know was this type of serial killer. Where people will use, they will commit murder, but they will use um, advertisements, either posting an advertisement or answering an advertisement from what I the, from the killers that I had studied, it would have been from newspaper classified ads or from like what they call personal ads. Uh, those used to be referred to as "lonely heart ads. I guess today and they even, they give an example. It would be more of people who contact people on the internet, either through Craigslist or Facebook marketplace, And some, like, I'm not talking about people who commit a robbery and it's a one-off and they get caught, per se. That happens. Like, that's a thing. What I'm talking about is people who commit these crimes in a multiple manner. Uh, And there's a number of reasons why they do this. If you start digging into the idea of Lonely Hearts Killers, the the motives of these crimes are kind of all over the board. Now, by definition, a murder has taken place. So is it a single murder? Is it more than one? That becomes like kind of how you shape this. The the simplest of these are, are like I described, robbery's gone wrong. I sat in on a, a six-day trial in the end of 2022 where a guy was selling a vehicle and he met up with a guy who instead of giving him this, it was a large amount of cash for like a nice like Range Rover vehicle. He, he shoots him multiple times. And, and this guy, it was definitely like a first degree murder. The whole reason for setting everything up was so that he could rob him and either use that vehicle or sell that vehicle and get money. So in terms of like how we're looking at it, that would be your money motive. Yeah,
1: but I don't think that that's that I wouldn't consider that like a robbery gone wrong. Well, I mean, was there any scenario where the guy wasn't going to get shot?
0: I don't think so. So you're right in some regards, but that I guess, hmm, well, we would just call that killing for money then.
1: I guess so, because, like, a robbery gone wrong is where, you know, somebody goes to get money from, you know, I don't know, a holdup at a convenience store or something, and then they, like, accidentally pull the trigger because they panic or something like that, right? Um, Yeah. I, I feel like, I know what case you're talking about, and I didn't feel like that guy had a chance. Like, it was, the deal was sealed as soon as he made the meeting,
0: OK, you're right. I, I guess I, I sort of I wrote that up in my notes and I, and I put it in the wrong place. But, but yeah, you're totally right. Robbery gone wrong from a that would be like you're going to buy this item for 500 bucks. You show up, you haggle over the price and like you decide that you're just going to take it and then you shoot the guy and kill him. This was not that. That was definitely premeditated.
1: It, I, that was my impression i didn't know you said that you had sat in on the trial i didn't know if you'd gotten more information i just no, it's
0: definitely like from date like that guy knew the minute he left that his was house a murder that was a straight up murder it was not a robbery it, was, going wrong. it
1: was a the motive was money and right um it was a waste
0: yeah so that's one i guess that's two that we gave by i gave by accident so the first one is like a straight up like, I'm going to kill this guy and take his shit because that's what happened. And it was terrible. And like that, like it was weirdly like one of the more awful crimes because there was something so innocent about the victim in that case. Like he just was literally like trusting and was like, I'm going to sell my car. That's, that's, that's like how he like woke up that morning. And um he wasn't found for a little while. Like this guy shot him, drove off with the body and basically dumped him. And, uh, you know, kind of left them to decompose out in the woods. Uh, so the guy was a really in-
1: terrible case.
0: Yeah. So, so that happened. In addition to that, and I didn't, I guess this falls under money too. There have been different examples over the years of Lonely Hearts killers who get involved in these, like, really complex insurance fraud pyramids. Where they're like recruiting people to either take their disability benefits or to take their like to sign them up for a life insurance policy and then like eventually kill them. Those are pretty interesting because I had never realized that one version of the old wanted ads was like room for rent, and like there were several killers that came out of that. Did you know about like have you seen yeah. any true crime stuff about them?
1: I've seen I've seen that yeah.
0: And then, you know, there's always the, the the unexplainable ones that I guess if we were to explain them, there's either a pathological impulse or some sort of violence going on. And by violence, typically it's sexual in nature. So there are a lot of these guys that were uh, raping the women that they met from classified ads and from wanted ads. Uh, there's a couple that have these like, uh, I guess they're ritualized if you were to pull up the, the wiki on this, but they they were dealing with some sort of impulse where they wanted to have sex with a dead body or like they wanted to take trophies from a body or there's one or two instances of like cannibalism in there. And one of the things I noted is they're real careful to specify that some Lonely Hearts killers don't start out as killers. They're actually like rapists or robbers or whatever, and murder ends up being committed to cover up the original crime. And there was a, a, there was a time when it was believed that there were plenty of serial predators, both rapists and serial, serial rapists and serial killers, who were using classified ads and one ads and personals ads as a method of targeting victims. I wanted to uh, give kind of a, a little bit of a backstory of some of uh, the research on this because I had thought if I started like, – like where we're going, several of these killers are in the 80s. That's sort of the sweet spot for like the end of the golden age or whatever of serial killers and it's when profiling becomes a big deal and it's when um, there's a lot of advancement in like forensics that happens. Um, and then like, in
1: technology in general.
0: Yeah. Technology in general changes the landscape after that. Um, so
1: you see that mark difference, right?
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's a huge difference.
1: Yeah. And you know, this is interesting. I, I don't know about you, but I've never, and I would never put an ad on anywhere mainly because I have all this stuff in my head about how many ways it can go bad.
0: Well, I say that because I had a misunderstanding of like what was going on here, but I used to, and I don't currently, I used to have different online ads for all kinds of stuff. Like well, I would I sell things online. all the
1: time and they don't think anything of it. And I'm, and I don't ever say anything. Cause I mean, it's just not a conversation I want to have, but I wouldn't dream of you know, interacting with people online with the possibility of meeting up with them for some reason. But I mean, I know people do it all the time.
0: Well, I, I had someone in my family who's trying to sell it like a tool and it yeah. keeps popping up in um, like one of my social media news feeds that like, it's still available. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if he's reposting it or if it's like just been sitting there the whole time or, or, or like what, but I, Okay, so this, this is weird, but this person is trying to sell a chainsaw. Right.
1: And I, well, I, I don't think that's weird.
0: I, I was like, well, but, but this is where my mind now goes. It used to be like my wife would put all sorts of stuff online to sell. And we've done that off and on for, for many years. But now I look at it and I go, who is going to show up at a stranger's house? With a wad of cash to buy a chainsaw, not me. Like, so there's probably nothing wrong with doing that, and, I, and it's totally a valid way to self, and also like this particular person, I don't think they would run into many issues with like someone coming to buy a chainsaw that was going to cause them harm. They're a large person that's you know probably fought out a lot of different aspects of of the negative parts of selling things online. That was just an example of how it can be in your life and and you don't even realize it.
1: Or he doesn't realize all the bad stuff that does happen and he's oblivious. It
0: could be that too.
1: I don't know. I feel like um, a lot of the reason I would never say anything is because I would never want to take somebody's obliviousness away from them. Sometimes that's the way to be.
0: Yeah. There's times when I would rather live in that world. The the first case I want to talk about, I was trying to figure out in the 80s, if you didn't kill someone, because this happens with like at least one, maybe two of the killers that we're going to cover. Um, I wanted to know what I could dig up on you. Uh, if you didn't kill someone, but you're still doing this nonsense. And, and I'm going to give this as an example. Um, and I asked you to run him down. And I think you had some trouble as well, but I'm, I'm, going to, I'm going to bring him up here because this is all the information I have. And we're talking about, Lonely Hearts Killers, but they have to start somewhere. And I felt like this guy, as far as I can tell, is a pretty good example of how things might start where you think Lonely Hearts is kind of the way to go as far as your crime career or whatever. Mm -hmm. Uh, This is a Newsday article. It's from February 17th of 1983, and it is buried, like, in the back pages. Uh, Here's what it says. Uh, classified ad rapist convicted. Uh, and this is by a woman named Karen Eve Weiner. She's the, the writer of this article. An Elmhurst man has been convicted of raping, sodomizing, and sexually abusing a woman in her home where he had gone in to answer a newspaper ad offering household furniture for sale. Uh, This is according to a press release from the local district attorney's office. Michael Vernon Bell, age 29, who had been in the Coast Guard for four years and is a recent engineering graduate of City College of New York, was convicted on Tuesday. So Tuesday would have been February the 15th in state Supreme Court in Jamaica. So this is going to be Queens District. Uh, Attorney John J. Santucci said that Bell, who has no prior criminal record, was indicted shortly after his April 5th arrest at the victim's home in Elmhurst. So they're referring to April 5th of 1982. According to testimony during the three-day non-jury trial before Justice Robert Groh, G-R-O-H, Groh, Bell sexually assaulted the 31-year-old woman Who was a mother of three small children on March the 3rd during his second visit to her house. There's a lot to unpack there. Kind of keep that in mind um, as as I go along, like all these different dates. So he's arrested April 5th, and now we're talking about March the 3rd, which was his second visit to this woman's home. According to Santucci's office, the victim's infant son, the only other person home at the time of the assault, was left crying in another room as Bell tied the woman's hands to a bed with pre-knotted white cord and raped and sodomized her. So Santucci's office said that although the woman had been ex- had not been expecting Bell to visit her that day, she led him into the house because she recognized him from his first visit on February the twenty sixth when he made an appointment with her to look at colonial-style bedroom furniture that she was offering to sell through a classified ad. During the first visit, the woman's mother-in-law had been present. Police ended up arresting Bell at the woman's home after she agreed to have authorities record the subsequent phone calls he made to her and to have him visit the house again, according to the prosecutor's office. At the time of his arrest, Bell was listed as living at 54-46 80th Street, where he had been living with his longtime girlfriend. A press release issued yesterday by Santucci's office said that Bell, who is a native of Arizona, had been in the Coast Guard from 1974 to 1978, and that shortly after relocating to New York, he enrolled in engineering studies at City College of New York, and he received his degree last month. So Bell faces a possible maximum sentence of eight and a half to 25 years in prison and sentencing was set for March 15th of 1983. So just like off the cuff there, what do you think of that little blurb?
1: Like with regard to what? Well, for one thing, uh, the first thing I think of is how like law enforcement, like re victimized the victim. Yeah. Uh, by making her call him and have him come back or whatever. Um, I assume that was because they just didn't find it credible enough or something.
0: I think I think they probably were like, he showed up with ropes and did what?
1: Right. And so that was my first thought on it. But, I mean, other than that, uh, I, I don't really think too much about it. I, I do feel like I would never have someone come to my home to look for anything for that exact reason.
0: <laughs> so what do you think that guy's sentence would be?
1: Uh, Michael Bell. It, you said it was 83.
0: Uh, 1983. And the range on his sentence could have been, I think it was eight and a half to 25 and a half years.
1: It's not going to be long enough for sure. It's going to be like, what do you get? 10 years maybe.
0: Well, so, <laughs> all right. This is a a article about two months later. It's on April the thirteenth, nineteen eighty three, by a guy named James Peters, and this is in the New York Daily News. This is not in Newsday. Here's what he says: Sentenced in March, rapist is free on bail. An Elmhurst man convicted in February of raping and sodomizing a woman who let him into her home to inspect a brass bed set she had put up for sale has been freed on bail since March 15th, pending the outcome of an appeal of his conviction. Uh, This is from a spokesman for the Queens District Attorney's Office. Several residents of the neighborhood in which the incident took place recognized the convicted man walking the streets and called the Daily News to inquire about him yesterday, asking why the man was not in jail. Michael Vernon Bell of 80th Street was found guilty by State Supreme Court Justice Robert Groh of rape, sodomy, sexual abuse, and unlawful imprisonment after a three-day non-jury trial in Jamaica Supreme Court. Grow sentenced Bell on March the 15th to the minimum two to maximum six years in jail, but he allowed Bell to remain free pending his appeal. At the time of sentencing, the district attorney's office had asked for a prison term of five to 15 years, noting the seriousness of the crime and the suffering that had been inflicted on the victim and through extension, her family. Bell's attorney, Richard Leff, told the Daily News yesterday that he had filed a notice of appeal with the courts. Leff also confirmed that Grow had allowed his client to remain free pending the outcome of the appeal that has been filed. Basically, the justice is letting him hang out while he gets through the appellate process, which this was interesting to me for a number of reasons. First of all, it's a classified ad rapist in 1982 who is being sentenced less than a year later in 1983 in New York, in, in Jamaica, Queens, no less, which is one of the busiest places in the country.
1: I think it's pretty clear that just from the tiny little information that you have recounted for this case, it was so much less of a big deal back then.
0: Yeah, it really was. It, it was not a very big deal at all. It's sort of a – and I know you looked a little bit – were you able to find this guy at all?
1: Uh, I never found him, no. I found people with his name.
0: But we didn't find, like, what had happened to this particular – No.
1: Do you know what happened to him?
0: I don't yet. And getting records from the 1980s about someone who was convicted and going through the appellate process has turned out to be – an interesting challenge i'm not saying i won't get them and if i do
1: so you don't know how the appeal went
0: no i don't know how the appeal went i'm wondering if it got kicked all together on some kind of technicality and that's why i'm having difficulty finding it
1: that's usually a case because um those are the hardest things to uh look into which are actually uh so cases where people have issues happen, like they end up being found not guilty for whatever reason, they're some of the hardest uh, ones to look into.
0: Yeah, they really are. And I have asked for some old court records. The first response I got was, dude, you know this is on microfiche, right? <laughs> I, had, I had not so, even considered so you that.
1: don't. So you don't know what the outcome was?
0: Hmm. I don't know yet, no. I just am pointing him out that He's a clear-cut example of someone who is just a rapist. Because I think, I think if he had done he would have more, been
1: more I, could have, I, I could have found
0: them. Yeah, yeah. I, I could have found them in the research I was doing about these type cases.
1: Well, I have to say, um, so ha- the police, like having her call him to come back, I feel like she may have been sending some mixed signals there.
0: I I wondered about that. I uh, I don't want to put anything on her, and I don't have her name. I don't have. Well, no, I'm anything about putting her. it
1: on law enforcement. I, I'm they they. I assumed they told her the only way she could get the case prosecuted was to do that. I'm not putting it on her. I, it was wrong for them to do that. But to me, like the very last thing a victim of sexual assault would do is call the person and have them come back.
0: Yeah. I couldn't. So there's not enough detail here without the court records. It's almost like they're trying to have her call him and admit to it. That's okay. the that's the um, impression I get. But you're right. They ultimately describe in this article, and it could be bad reporting. I don't. I don't know if that's the case. Uh, and the Daily News has an article on him that's a little different than the first article I read, and then like I'll tell you this you can give me your final thoughts on this and then I want to tell you like a, like we're going to move on to another guy that did something like this so this article comes from Thomas Hanrahan and it's on February 17th of 1983 this is the daily news so the first one was weekday this is the daily news it's a slightly different version An Elmhurst man has been convicted of raping and sodomizing a woman who led him into her home to inspect a brass bed that she had put up for sale. Queen's District Attorney John Santucci announced yesterday. Michael Vernon Bell of 80th Street was found guilty by Justice Robert Grove this week of rape, sodomy, sexual abuse, and unlawful imprisonment after a three-day non-jury trial in Jamaica Supreme Court. So in case you don't know what that means? A non-jury trial is called a bench trial. It means that you are presenting your information to a judge only. Bell was accused of raping the 31-year-old mother of three small children about 10 a.m. on March the 3rd of 1982. Santucci said the woman's 10-month-old son was present during the attack, which took place after Bell made an unannounced follow-up visit to inspect the bed, a dresser, and two night tables. The victim had placed an ad in the classified section of a newspaper in the early part of 1982. This case illustrates that even if the prospective buyer had been up to the home before to view the items up for sale, the person should not be allowed back into the home if he or she shows up again without prior appointment and when the would-be seller is alone, said Santucci. Santucci pleaded with the public to never open the door to a stranger when alone. Call a neighbor by phone to come right over or have the person come back by appointment when you are not alone. According to testimony of the trial, Bell saw the ad in the classified section and responded to it on February 26, 1982. The future victim and her mother-in-law were present at the time. He took a look at the furniture and left, saying he needed to discuss the purchase with his wife before making a final decision. On March the 3rd, Bell returned and his pockets were pre-knotted links of white cord, which he used to tie the victim's hands together before tying them over her head into the brass bed. After raping his victim, Bell fled only to call the woman back on the telephone days later. On April the 1st, Bell called and was taped by the police, who had asked the victim to agree to any request he might make to see her again. On April 5th, Bell returned to the home near Gorsland Street and 51st Avenue, where he was nabbed by the victim's husband and the victim's cousin. A spokesman for the district attorney, Tom McCarthy, said that when arrested, Bell had in his possession the classified ad and a small personal phone book with a phone number from the ad alongside the victim's first name. Santucci said he would ask that the maximum sentence be imposed on Bell because of the suffering of the victim and her family. The family has since left the city because of the incident, and the victim is unable to stay at home alone anymore. Bell will be sentenced March the 15th, and he faces 25 years to life. So that's a different version of the first ad. kind of explains what they were doing there.
1: I guess the minimums at this time weren't actually mandatory, huh?
0: No, they would not have been mandatory minimums back then, no.
1: Well, I tried to look really quick. Um, I can't find uh, the outcome either. So I'm going to, yeah, most of the time, I, and I'm not saying for this case specifically, but most of the time when that happens, uh, the reason is something happened and it's not newsworthy any longer.
0: Well, so the ne- the next guy that I want to talk about is, uh, he's considered a one ad killer as well. Um, this is He, by the time this all happens, uh, like at the time of, what we just described in 1982, 1983, this guy would have been in prison for nine years. He is not talked about a lot. And I have a feeling it's because people can't pronounce his last name, but that's just me. His name uh, is Harvey the Hammer. Uh, He was born May 18th, 1927. And his actual name is Harvey Lewis Carrigan. he is still alive at 95 years old. Um, he has a permanent home at the Minnesota Correctional Facility in Faribault uh, for two of the things that he did. The initial murder for Mr. Harvey is in 1949. So on July 31st of 1949, he killed a woman named Laura Showalter uh, in Alaska. On September 16, 1949, he attempted to rape another woman and he ended up being arrested the next day. She's alive, by the way. Uh, Harvey was convicted of first-degree murder and assault with intent to commit rape. These are the 40s, by the way. Uh, The jury did not recommend what is known at that time as mercy and he got a mandatory death sentence. In 1951, it was a federal court at the time. They ruled that his confession had been improperly obtained and they chucked it. So he gets a new trial and officer there, when the confession was taking place during like a pause in the interrogation, Harvey had asked him if he would be executed. If he confessed to the murder of Laura Shulwalter, and the officer said, "No, you won't. You won't be executed." So that was enough for him to like. Basically, the idea was he would not have confessed if he knew he could get the death sentence. Just to keep in mind, like like what we're looking at there, he's born in 1927. These crimes in Alaska, which would have been a territory at the time, not a state yet. They're taking place in 1949. So he's 22 years old when this happens. So you've got a 22-year-old guy. He commits a murder. And then he, like, it, the the idea is he was going to try and rape her. And he ends up killing her. Um, and then he turns around and tries to rape another woman who gets away. So with his confession being su- suppressed because, like, and if you if you get a chance, look up a picture of this guy. Have you seen him before? Have you seen I his face? Have. Yeah. He like looks like every serial killer I've ever thought of. He ends up uh, when he gets the new trial. The confession gets kicked. It technically the term is suppressed. They suppress the confession, meaning the prosecution cannot use it as evidence in the case. And what do you think happens to the murder charge when that happens? He gets dismissed. Right. So the murder charge so and the attempted rape charge for Laura Showalter, that gets kicked entirely. So he still has to serve the 15-year sentence for the other woman from September. But in 1952, he gets transferred to Alcatraz. And Alcatraz is a, a federal system uh, prison. It is not a like a local jail. So if you're in Alcatraz, things move at a pretty quick clip, even in the 40s. So he ends up being paroled in 1960. So, you know, he was sentenced on this 15 year sentence. The death penalty gets kicked that he had been up for. So his sentence basically ends up being about 10 years um for this attempted rape and assault on the woman who survived. So Harvey and his brother Clinton are just hanging out at Alcatraz because apparently that's what people in their family did and they're at the at the Carrigan Ker- do you have any idea if i'm saying his name right by the way
1: that's how i would say it.
0: Okay, so Carrigan the Carrigan Carrigan household they um You know, they're both parolees from Alcatraz. So they head up to Minnesota. And while they're in Minnesota, they end up getting arrested for burglary. And they're both convicted of attempted third-degree burglary, which I don't even know what third-degree burglary would be in 1949. First degree, you have a weapon, and typically there's like a midnight burglary element Second-degree burglary is like your basic breaking and entering, but you might not have taken anything. So I don't know what third-degree is. Maybe they they planned to go into a house, but they didn't. So Harvey goes back to prison for four years, and, and he gets sent to Leavenworth. Now, Leavenworth is sort of the stuff of, like, legends and to some degree. Um, it is a federal penitentiary uh, that is, I think it's medium security today. Um, It's in Northeast Kansas. Uh, So he gets paroled again on March the 2nd of 1964. And in November of 1964, um, Harvey is arrested for second-degree burglary in Washington State. He gets found guilty there, and he receives a 15-year sentence um, in 1965. How long do you think before he gets on parole again? Five years. No. So 1965, he gets a 15-year sentence, and he gets paroled in 1968. How? He ends up violating his parole in... He gets his GED in jail, and he takes several college courses. Uh, He... In 1968, he's paroled. He gets married to a woman named Sheila Moran, and he moves in with her and her daughter in 1969. But in 1969, police in Walla Walla, Washington, uh, arrest him on suspicion of robbery. Now, he never goes to court for that. But what they do to him is something we frequently see. Since they can't get him on the robbery, convic- they can't get a conviction for it, they violate his parole. And sent him back. So he goes back in jail for a year. And then he gets out in 1970. And Sheila divorces him. When Sheila divorces him, it's because of physical abuse. But in April of 1972, he gets married again to a woman named Alice Johnson. Who has two children. Uh, one is 11 years old. as a boy. And then there's a girl who is 14 years old. On October fifteenth, 1972... A 19-year-old woman named Leslie Laura Brock is found dead in Washington with blunt force trauma uh, via several blows to the head. There's at least one witness who said that they had seen Leslie Brock getting into Harvey's truck. On May 1st of 1973, so not I mean, a little bit later, but that's not really that much later. It's about seven months later. 15-year-old Kathy Sue Miller saw a help wanted ad in the window of Harvey's uh, gas station. So Harvey, somehow Harvey ends up, I guess, owning a gas station in Washington. So Kathy Sue Miller... Uh, she's 15 years old and she answers a newspaper ad that's placed by Harvey uh, where he wants help at his gas station. And that's how Harvey ties into all of this. He basically uh, ends up using that help wanted ad to lure her to him. Otherwise they never would have crossed paths. Now what's really interesting about, this is the timing of it all. So this would be 1972 in Washington State. Okay? Yeah. 1973 in Washington State. You know what happens in 1974 in Washington State? Ted Bundy. Yeah. So Bundy is going to become a huge name out there. So this is taking place just ahead of that. Now... When Kathy Sue Miller shows up to Harvey's gas station, he rapes her and he beats her to death with a hammer. Several months later, two boys were hiking uh, just north of Everett, Washington on reservation land, and they find Kathy Miller's body and she is wrapped in a sheet of plastic. And the coroner immediately recognizes that she has full holes in her skull calls by a hammer. So Harvey is the prime suspect for Brock and Miller. Brock, because of the person seeing like they, they were real specific. Like he had a silver colored truck. They saw him get into the truck Miller uh, because she had answered his ad. He is never, he has never faced charges in the murder of Leslie Brock or Kathy Miller. Those cases are open but closed. I don't know. Like, how do we describe those in the past?
1: They're, they're not, uh, they know who did it. There's just not the evidence to prove it.
0: Yeah. They're just not adjudicated. Is that On September 9th of 1973, which is a few months after Kathy Miller had come in for the help wanted sign. Some of the things that happened like along the way here, um, was the Virginia Piper case. Have you ever heard of her case, by the way?
1: I don't think so. Okay. So in, in July of
0: 1972, two armed men uh, broke into the home of a woman named Virginia Lewis Piper. They walked, she's 49 years old. They handcuff her, they blindfold her. Uh, they. This is up in Minnesota, by the way. They They walk her out of the house. And the next day, Harry Piper Jr., a uh, Twin Cities investment banker, her husband, personally delivers a million dollar ransom to the unidentified kidnappers. This is a really long time ago. No one has ever found any of that. Well, they found about four grand um, of that money, but her kidnapping is to this day considered unsolved. However, it is suspected that this is how Harvey and his brother end up with a gas station. Huh? So I'm saying well, that she
1: returned.
0: Yeah, yeah. 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 He paid the ransom and they let her go.
1: Oh, well that would uh, make sense actually. Yeah.
0: Um, but they're saying that like, so they're saying that that is potentially how, Harvey gets his gas station. If you if you look through different sources, um, sort of the, that's not going to be like the Wikipedia. That's in the deep dive, but I promise you, it's a fascinating read to check out. Well, the, the
1: timing, timing would um, add up. It
0: looks like yeah, the timing would be perfect. So we got Kathy Sue Miller. She dies on May first, nineteen seventy three. On June twenty eighth, nineteen seventy three, a woman named Mary Townsend is attacked by Harvey while she's waiting at a bus stop. He attacks her from behind um, knocking her unconscious with a hammer, but she woke up as he's driving away um, in his silver truck. He starts demanding that she do things sexually to him while uh, they're driving away. And we've talked about this before, Mary Townsend does the right thing and she rolls out of the vehicle. She escapes. So then in July of 1973, Harvey's in kind of an odd spot with his wife at the time, Alice. So Billy, he has moved out like in the previous year because Harvey is beating the hell out of him. When he moves out, it makes things harder for Alice, his wife, Harvey's wife, and Georgia, her older daughter. In July of 1973, she has enough of his shit. Harvey gets arrested for assaulting Alice and Alice moves out. So on September 9th of 1973, he he picks up a 13-year-old girl um, who's hitchhiking. He beats her with a hammer and he, he sexually assaults her. And then he tells her she can go, but that he's going to kill her if she says anything. Um, and she doesn't say anything for quite some time. So... He gives up on the relationship that he had with his wife over the course of the next several months. And we have a break from September into May. And May of 1974, he picks up this woman hitchhiking named Eileen Hunley. And what do you think he does to her?
1: They move in together and play house.
0: Is it that wild? Like one of them... He.
1: It's, like... it's strange. I agree.
0: So Eileen and Harvey... They settled down in, in Minnesota in 1974. Now, they, it doesn't last very long. Um, Eileen's a little older than some of the other people involved here. She's 29 years old. And on August 9th of 1974, she leaves Harvey. And in true Harvey fashion, what do you think happens to Eileen?
1: Well, he killed her. I do think it's strange, though, because that's a completely different type of murder,
0: Right. It is to me, but it has a lot of similarities to what was going on there, so she disappears like she goes missing and five weeks later her body is found um her head had like her skull has been shattered so it's a rage killing and so she had been raped with a tree branch and I guess like if we look at it just from a timeline perspective uh, I think Harvey is going to be 50-ish. So that's 1974. He's not quite 50. He's going to be 47 years old. Is that right? So he's going to be around 47 years old. So I'm wondering if he's having trouble in other regards, which is why he uses the tree branch on her. He just like,
1: being a jerk.
0: Well... So that's – her body is found uh, five weeks later. And then in September of 1974, June Lynch and a companion um, – so June Lynch is 17 years old, and she has a companion who's 16 years old. They're picked up by Harvey while they're hitchhiking in Minneapolis. Harvey offers them money if they would help him go and pick up another car that he said was stranded in a rural location – so he takes them out of town, and once they're on the outskirts of town, Harvey stops the car, and he beats June in the head and in the face with a hammer. Her friend is able to get away, and while she is running away, Harvey leaves June on the side of the road to die. This is September 8th of 1974. I don't understand like the pattern that, that is about to, to come out in this guy, so I want to ask you about some of this. He picks up at a Sears parking lot a woman named Gwen Burton. He chokes her in like almost unconscious and he sexually assaults her with the hammer is what it says in the paperwork. And then he dumps her body into a nearby field. She survives the attack and crawls up to the road to get help.
1: But when he dumped her, he thought she was dead, I imagine, right?
0: Yeah, he thought thought that she was dead.
1: Or dying at least.
0: He thought, yeah, well, he thought, yeah, he thought she wasn't going to live through it. So, what's weird about that for me is the paperwork says she was sexually assaulted with the hammer. Mm-hmm. So, he's no longer raping these women, he's using objects.
1: Right, but you have to remember when the switch occurred. So, he had had um, whatever Eileen. Con- constituted a you know, sort of meaningful relationship with this woman, I guess. They lived together and she left him and he killed her because he was mad it was for revenge, right? Or maybe yeah. love, I guess. So I feel, I don't know exactly uh, where the whole thing is headed, but I feel like he's killing her over and over again here.
0: That makes sense, actually. And he's trying
1: Obviously. to be... Uh, I don't know if he feels like he's some somehow justified in uh, using objects. Like, I can't tell you exactly what he's doing there, but it probably... Um, there's probably a reason. It might be because he was impotent at that point. Uh, it might be because he wasn't going to... He wanted them to be assaulted, just not by him, right? Because he is he had a lot of hostility towards this woman leaving him. That's why he beat her to death with a hammer. Right.
0: Yeah. September 18th, 1974, just a few days later, um, he picks up two more teenagers and as he's, as Harvey is driving them around, he forces them to perform oral sex. Um, and he's beating them if they don't follow his commands closely. Now he ends up having to stop for gas and when he stops for gas, they beat feet they get the hell out of there so they escape from
1: him so that tells me that that wasn't like a he wasn't super planning these things right
0: I think he's decompensating at this point like I think at this point like his plans are out the window here here's what I I think like just in plain terms, and I'm not trying to get super psychological on this. I'll tell you what I think. And you tell me what you think. And we'll go on to like how this all goes nuts. I think what's happening is he screws up when he picks up Eileen hitchhiking. She's a little older. He likes her. And for some reason they hit it off and they have this like brief relationship. You call it a meaningful relationship could be, or it could just be that it was a break in his routine. But I think what it does for him, and I don't know anything about their relationship, but I think it screws up the separation that he has had before where he had these wives that were one way, and then he had these victims, and that was another thing. But it's basically like worlds are colliding for him.
1: Yeah, that's what it seemed like to
0: me. And he's no longer getting off on the same things that he was getting off on. And he's trying to, in his idiot mind, he's trying to figure out how to, like, get back to where he was when he was, I don't know if the word is happy, but able to perform. It's almost like he's trying to figure out if it's, like, if I pick up one or I pick up two, like, what happens. And they're also not dying as much because they're escaping and, like, he's leaving them alive.
1: Well, and I don't know if you noticed or not, but um, from the very beginning in 1949, um, it only says that he was attempting to rape them, right? Right. Um, and so we don't know, like, really what was going on. It could all be, like, related to that from the very beginning. Um, and it just has gotten worse over time. I, I don't know. I I do feel like... Um, what you're saying about the world world's colliding would make sense though.
0: So the next thing that happens for Harvey is on September 20th, 1974. um, an 18 year old girl named Catherine Schultz disappears. She does not make it to class and people start looking for her pretty quickly. Her body is found by hunters the next day on September 21st, 1974 in a cornfield about 40 miles away from Minneapolis and her skull is uh, not just beaten, but it's described as having been imploded. So the difference there for me is that rage, I think. You know what I mean? Like the the beatings are getting more and more severe.
1: I mean, I don't know that – I don't actually know that they are, but I would say that um, – that it is severe in and of itself, even without the comparison. I don't know that like, you know, the 1972, um, like with Leslie Brock, I don't know that her blows weren't just as bad. You know, you
0: know what I mean? Yeah. I may be reading a little too much. Into but that.
1: regardless, I do feel like they both would be a rage. Uh, I feel like you have to have quite a bit of rage to use a hammer.
0: Yeah. You're, you're probably, you're probably correct. Um, I you know as I think about it, yeah, you're probably spot on with that. So three days later, Harvey ends up getting uh, pulled over, and when he gets pulled over, uh, the the survivor that he left at the cornfield has described his car, and police are uh, they are searching his vehicle, and they find a map with 181 circles on it in Harvey's car. So some of these circles had identified places where he had applied for jobs or bought a car or briefly lived, but they find several bodies at the locations on Harvey's map that seized in September of 1974. Um, They, They also find circles that are associated with areas in which other unsolved crimes against women had taken place, including like attempted murders and strangulations and assaults. Um, What I've read off to you is just what is confirmed uh, to have been his. So in February of 1975, Harvey has pleaded insanity, and he claims that, uh, that God has ordered him to kill all the whores and the harlots. His defense, how, how do you think it went? Do you think it worked? No. Well, it was, yeah, it didn't. His defense fails. And what ends up happening is um, Harvey does end up being found guilty on the first round of charges. So the first round of charges for him, they are attempted murder and aggravated sodomy. So that victim lived. He. This is the whole not guilty by reason of... Insanity. Um, He gets sent to St. Peter's State uh, State Hospital in March of 1975, and he gets a psychiatric examination where he's diagnosed as having a a pretty severe antisocial personality disorder. In April of 1975, he goes on trial and he's found guilty for four counts of sodomy and indecent liberties on the 13-year-old hitchhiker that he had picked up. He gets sentenced to 30 years for that and then 30 years on the other survivor who had identified him in a lineup that he had left and basically she crawled to the road and was able to live. Um, he was only ordered to serve 40 of those years. But then in June of 1975, he gets in indicted on murder charges related to Catherine. This is Kathy Schultz. So he does get indicted on the, Kathy Schultz charges and he gets indicted, uh, the same day on the murder of Eileen Hunley. Um, February 9th of 1976, he waives his right rights. Uh, he takes the stand. He pleads guilty to the murder of Kathy Schultz and he gets a sentence of 40 years. So under Minnesota law, he could serve no more than forty years, no matter how many years that total sentence came out to be at the time. Um, But he was avoiding the life sentence and only serving the 40 years was his idea. In June of 1976, he was found guilty of the first-degree murder of Eileen Hunley, which is the 29-year-old woman he had lived with briefly after picking up hitchhiking. He gets sentenced to life in prison. 1978, multiple times, uh, Minnesota Supreme Court hears different versions of Harvey's appellate matters and they uphold his conviction in 1997 he was diagnosed with prostate cancer uh, but the end of harvey's story is he is still alive today uh now i've pulled from a variety of of settings here but one of the cooler ones um was an ann rule book called the one ad killer I pulled from the encyclopedia of serial killers, which for some reason I have like just sitting on my shelf here. Um, I also pulled from a Radford university, uh, the department of psychology up in Radford, Virginia had put together like a timeline. Uh, so there's like quite a few students listed on that. If you, if you look it up, uh, it probably is linked to his Wikipedia page. I'm guessing it is, it's down at the bottom. And then, I read a brief thing about him and Alcatraz, the last survivors. So my point in bringing up Harvey Kerrigan, Kerrigan, um, his his is sort of a a complete story, except for the fact that he hasn't died yet. He's 95 years old, surviving in prison. He's sort of a complete story, wouldn't you think?
1: Well, I mean, it, it does have, like, some forms of completion, but it is interesting with the map, uh, in the 181 circles, it makes me wonder like what else he might've done.
0: Yeah. He like, he's one of those where, um, when I first pulled him up, it might've been Wikipedia, murderpedia or one of those. Like if you pull him up and look at just the, uh, the basics of his case, I think it says convicted of three and then it has one of those like five or six plus, you know what I mean? Like Like indicating they're not quite sure what all he's done.
1: Which, so that would make it incomplete. But as far as like, um, you know, mysterious serial killers goes, uh, he does, I mean, he is in jail for the rest of his life and he's also 95 years old. Um, he's a very strange, uh, character though i think
0: what do you what do you say strange character
1: he's like all over the place
0: yeah he really is
1: and it could be the fact that like he was born in 1927 and it could be uh the difference in time right that could account for some of like why his behavior seems like wildly uh just it it doesn't even seem appropriate for a serial killer right but uh, he, for example, he commits like a lot of assaults and lets girls go or they get away from him. And so I'm not entirely sure. I feel like a lot of the murders that he committed might've had to do with rage.
0: Yeah. I, I tend to agree with you. I think that he probably is a, a rage killer. I like, I can't help but wonder just sort of looking at him and like seeing how these uh, crimes went down. If there wasn't something going on with him where he had an inferiority complex. He just couldn't overcome that. That part was interesting to me. Um, well,
1: and there's a lot of eyewitness accounts that seem to lead to his conviction. And so I don't necessarily think that this is one that they just lump uh, cases on. Right. Yeah. Um, so it seems like a lot of, you know, the, the what has been sh- uh, you know, the narrative that's been woven, it seems to be pretty legitimate. And he, he also is not famous at all, right?
0: Yeah, no, he's not a famous serial killer. Um, although Anne Rule wrote about him early on. I don't know how much you know about uh, Anne Rule in, in general, or the audience does, but Anne Rule's a pretty prolific author who is perhaps most well-known for her connection to Ted Bundy. Um She has passed away, but from... She wrote a a story called The One Ad Killer, which, you know, it's like a it's a book. It's if you wanted to to learn more about um Harvey and his situation, and I will tell you that Harvey's name is misspelled in a lot of the court records that I was able to pull up. He actually uh his name is H-A-R-V-E-Y. But for some reason in Minnesota, if you go to pull up like old records of him, it's H-A-R-V-Y in the court system and in the prison system like her second or third book where she was still writing under a pseudonym which i think this would have been written under the name andy stack that was the pseudonym she would have used at the time um she wrote about him and it's a pretty for for what it is it's pretty shockingly complete considering how little we know about um like what else harvey might have done uh, but i thought this was a good place to start season four with something like this that felt like You could see a lot of different components of what a real serial killer is. Because in my mind, this guy is a loser killer. He's a rage killer, but he's also a serial killer.
1: I think that's fair. I do. Um, And it's really interesting. So the first time I probably ever saw this guy was when we were looking into Ted Bundy. Because he does – his reign of terror is like basically right before Bundy's, right?
0: I've wondered if – Like there's not some kind of inspiration that Bundy drew from people like this.
1: I I have no idea. I don't know what it would have been like um, as far as coverage of it or whatever. Um, But it is interesting that, uh, you know, the Pacific Northwest has had its share of serial killers for sure. Um, It's a, it, Those cases always give me the creeps. Um, I don't really know why. It's just like a sense I've developed. But as soon as they start talking about Washington, it's like, oh, great. (laughs) One of these situations. Here we go again. I'm
0: going to, I think that's it for me for this episode. But this is sort of the direction we're heading. Because this is going to link into the next several episodes because we have a serial killer coming up who is a one ad serial killer. Thank you for joining us. We are sponsored by LabratiCreations.com. You can check them out at LabratiCreations.com and you can still use the code CRIMEXS for a fun pop pet portrait of your own pet. You can also reach us on Twitter, Instagram, at truecrimexs. Or you can give us a call if you know anything about any of the cases that we're talking about at 252-365-5593. You can also reach us at Gmail at truecrimexs at gmail.com. And you can check out our website at www.truecrimexs.com. We'll see you next time.